Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tales from the Veg Patch with me, Kathy Slack. In this episode, I will digress. What? It's only episode two! How can she digress already? Well, I want to set out my stall. And it's not much of a digression, really. We'll still be on vegetables, but since I'm going to be talking a lot in this podcast about how growing food is so good for restoring your mental health... I want to explain a bit more about why I think that. And that means telling you the grisly tale of how I came to need restoring in the first place. Or at least the start of it. Fair warning, there's some stuff about depression in this episode, so if that's a bit of a trigger for you, maybe come back to it later. How vegetables saved my life and why it needed saving in the first place. Summer 2012. Daybreak. A glorious June morning in the Cotswolds. House martins chirrup as they dart over the poppy-flecked fields beyond. I am sitting, pyjamaed, on the edge of the raised beds in our garden. The cottage I moved into with my husband a few years ago is glowing in the morning light. The pale Cotswold stone turned amber, warm and welcoming. I am sitting amongst all this beauty, sobbing. I mean, uncontrollably. I'm half worried I'm going to wake the neighbours or frighten the sheep in the nearby field. Proper bawling. I have no idea why. Jet lag? Yesterday, I flew to New York from London and back again for a half-hour meeting with the US creative director of the advertising agency I work for. In the end, it was barely a 15-minute meeting and it mostly involved him shouting at me. Or it could be nerves about the creative briefing I have this afternoon, in which I will attempt to convince a pair of understandably jaded men that writing a radio advert about the cholesterol-lowering qualities of a cooking fat spray is the most exciting thing they will do this year, and will definitely, definitely win them awards. Whatever the reason, I've noticed lately that this has become my morning ritual – I wake up feeling like someone's put lead weights in my lungs. I have a nameless dread that everyone I love is dead. I sit amongst the vegetables in the hope of a little peace or comfort. I get in the shower and I go to work. 
which is what I'd better do now because I have a PowerPoint presentation about the chocolate buying habits of Saudi women to finish on the 6.32 to Paddington before my 8 o'clock client meeting in London. The morning does not go well. I can't work out how to turn the shower on. It is quite a complicated mixer-tap arrangement, but I've done it every day since we moved in six years ago and never struggled before. And there's a similar fog about where to put the keys to turn the car on. It's not that I've forgotten. I can see the shape of the gap where the information should be. It's that the answer's hovering out of reach for some reason. Like when you can't recall a particular word or momentarily forget what eight times four is. Probably jet lag. Things continue in this vein for a few months. I travel internationally most weeks. I work 14-hour days. I commute four hours a day. I write a lot of PowerPoint. I dream in PowerPoint too. I fail to enthuse creative teams. I make dancing on the head of a pin into an art form. What permeates these weeks most is a sense of dread, physical, stomach-wrenching, stuff-of-nightmares terror. It doesn't stem from a particular worry. It is directionless, panicky, pit-of-the-stomach fear that makes you recoil from every noise in case it finally signals that what you've been braced for, the sky falling in and all being lost, is happening. So there I am with my terror, in my Jimmy Choo's, my corner office, my excellent PowerPoint skills, and I'm climbing the ladder to join the board of my most recent ad agency, where I've been for almost a year. One morning, I have a routine nurse's appointment. I'd moved a few conference calls and managed to get her first appointment in the morning, but it would shorten my working day, making it even more hectic, so I was already wound tight. And anyway... It was eating into my preferred sobbing-in-the-veg-patch time. Your blood pressure's quite low, said the nurse, a plump, motherly figure with kind eyes, everything you want in a nurse. Are you feeling okay? Maybe it was because it was the sobbing hour, or perhaps it was her warm eyes, but I dissolved into tears and garbled something incomprehensible about work being a bit stressful. She gave me a box of tissues, deposited me in the waiting room, spoke to the receptionist and marched me straight in to see the doctor, who was terrifying. She was the doctor you hope you didn't get allocated when you booked an appointment. She was fierce, dismissive and abrupt. She couldn't locate a bedside manner if it hit her with a bedpan. Still, she looked at me, prodded me, weighed me, took a lot of blood tests asked me some probing questions and signed me off work for the foreseeable future with depression and anxiety. The burnout was so predictable in hindsight. I'd been stressed for a decade and jet-lagged solidly for a year. Like so many others before me, my body and my brain just shut down. One week I was flying to Dubai for a lunch meeting with the board of a multi-million dollar company and the next I was sat on my sofa, unable even to make a cup of tea. I would remain on that sofa, tealess, for almost a year, and rehabilitation would come from an unlikely source. When we moved out of London to the Cotswolds, I started growing vegetables straight away. It had been one of the main motivations for moving to have a garden. 
So as soon as we moved in, I cleared a little square of ground in our new garden, marked it out with tent pegs and string and allocated it to vegetables to tide me over until we installed raised beds. At weekends, I would thumb my dog-eared RHS manual, kneeling on the soil and wondering if plant to a depth of five centimetres meant five centimetres from the bottom of the one centimetre long broad bean seed or the top. I do like to be precise. Over the seasons, I'd become a competent novice veg grower and would take gluts of beans and courgettes into work to foist on anyone who didn't look at me like I was mad. These were people who lived off Deliveroo and stored shoes in their ovens. No joke. They must have thought I was from another planet. Now, off work, sick and drugged up, I couldn't settle to anything. One day, particularly fidgety and jumpy, my mum, who'd come every day that I was ill, made me tea and sent me into the garden, anything to get me out of the house, even if it was only a couple of metres. Clutching my tea, I take up my familiar sobbing spot, perched on the edge of one of the raised beds. But it's long past the sobbing hour and the sun is high overhead. The beds are full of weeds, ramshackle and unkempt from weeks of neglect. I balance my mug on the wooden frame and place my hands on the soil and stare. The soil is warm from the summer sun. At first I see nothing, but after a minute I notice movement. An ant scaling my thumb which has blocked its root to who knows where. Tiny weeds fluttering in the breeze which must seem like a gale down there. Armoured woodlice bustling over the soil, self-important generals off to organise the troops. The soil that I thought was bare is in fact fizzing with life. I didn't know it then, but this was the beginning of recovery and the start of a whole new life. Over the course of the year, the vegetable patch, very quietly, would save my life. It would reconnect me with the world show me a new path and give me hope, like a battery hen let loose and shown a free-range world. Over the coming weeks, the veg patch became my refuge, an escape to another world, of seedlings, of worms, and seedling-eating mice too, but let's stick to the positives for now. I entered their domain and saw all nature's struggles from on high. One day, I saw a woodlice battling to move a fleck of bark, its tiny body straining against the weight, little legs scurrying beneath it to find traction. Gosh, I thought, that woodlouse is really wound up about not being able to shift that piece of bark. She must be really pissed off. Perhaps it's blocking her route home, or maybe even blocking her actual home. Look how her whole being is consumed by such an insignificant task. I was reminded that my own struggles were, in the grand scheme of things, just as inconsequential. The world would keep turning if I missed a client's workshop. In fact, I could single-handedly bankrupt the entire agency and all our clients with it, and the sun would still rise, just as it would if this woodlouse failed to move the bark. Physically and mentally, both the woodlouse and I felt like the world was ending. 
but from my macro view on high, I could see that for her, it was not. So it probably wasn't for me either. Another time, a few months later, I spent most of a day planting radish seeds. It's not a big job, but I was very slow and totally immersed. I had just one task and nothing to distract me. I found such jobs really reassuring. I would imagine all the other vegetable gardeners over hundreds of years who had grown radishes just like I was now. It was like stepping out of time, doing work that had been done for years in a landscape that had looked this way for generations. It was a world away from my life in London, where things were constantly in flux, changing and splintering with every knee-jerk reaction. I felt connected to the landscape, the soil and the generations of growers who had gone before me. And connection is what veg growing is all about. You cannot help but feel connected to the space. You spend so much time at close quarters with the earth that you develop an intricate knowledge of its habit. Which bits are clay, which are free draining, which are especially infested with bindweed. This sense of connection was a revelation for me. This might bring me just one barefooted step away from getting henna tattoos and wearing tie-dye dungarees, but I am prepared to embrace that fashion because when I saw nature up close, I knew that this was real life, not the construct I was part of in London. The veg patch was not an escape from reality. It was reality. I wasn't getting away from it all when I came to the veg patch. I was putting myself back in, back at the centre of things. And at the centre of things, everything was clear and simple. In the kitchen garden, I was reminded that the worlds we live in day to day do not ultimately matter very much. And that what is real is the nature that surrounds us. All that from planting radishes and watching a woodlouse. I'm going to talk more about all of this in future episodes, but it's not so much the story that I'm interested in. It's why particularly growing food helped to fix me. Why not walking or getting a dog, though that was a big deal? Or literature or just any old gardening? What was it specifically about growing vegetables that made such a difference to my well-being in a way that other things did not? Could have been knitting. I'm interested to work this out, partly for my own self-indulgent curiosity, but also because I want to know what to do if it happens again. If the allotment was a coping mechanism, I want to know what made it such a successful one, so that if I am ever again walking around with my head on fire and nobody being able to see the flames, as Matt Haig puts it, I know what a good fire extinguisher looks like. I've also found that there's some comfort in knowing you're not the only one who has felt like this, that others have been where you are and have made it out the other side, which is why I think it's a good thing to talk about mental health and especially to share ways of coping with it. That's not to say that what worked for me will work for everyone. Melancholy is notoriously individual and what I found calming, like weeding, might drive others to distraction. But even if your cure isn't my cure, if indeed it can be cured at all, then at least it's good to know that we're not alone. I'm going to finish with a caveat and a caution, mostly to myself, because the recent willingness to talk about mental health is, without question, a good thing. But it does come with some dangers. 
The first would be voiced by my grandfather were he still alive. What do you want to go picking that scab for? Leave well alone and it won't scar. He was from Sheffield. Well, Grandpa, your caution, let's call it that rather than cynicism, is well founded. For if we spend too much energy examining our own anguish, might it not make it worse? Hadn't we better leave well alone? What if we talk about it so much that we define ourselves by our depression? Stephen Fry described this brilliantly in an interview. I still feel occasionally, he said, a danger of becoming sort of professionally mentally unstable, as if that's what I am, that's who I am. Wise words both. The other risk is that by talking about all the people who have ever experienced depression, we make it seem like everyone has depression, that it's quite normal, not a big deal, when in fact it really is. Or it becomes some macabre, woke fashion accessory, the badge of a sensitive, interesting soul, like a gap year in India. Packaging depression up tidily to make it sellable and easily consumed suits the wellness industry because a neat problem can have a neat solution. Retreats, supplements, mindfulness apps, diets, decluttering programs, life coaching. Do all this and you'll be cured. Take it too far and depression risks becoming nothing more than a neat narrative arc in someone's life, an understandable moment of suffering. But depression is none of these things. It might be widespread, but it's not ordinary. It is not a horrible phase we all go through, like chickenpox. It isn't linear or orderly or predictable. It's a mess, an ugly, unpredictable, unedifying train wreck you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. And then what if we start to overdiagnose and imagine that any unhappiness is depression? The wellness industry would love that too. A bigger audience to sell to. So many pitfalls. I'm tempted just to stop here. But that would not do. Not least because there's food to discuss. But also because it would leave me no opportunity to cultivate an insatiable urge to empty yoghurt pots and plant them with some vegetable seeds. You've been listening to Tales from the Veg Patch with me, Kathy Slack. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 